Good afternoon and welcome to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. It's Tuesday, 1 p.m. as usual. I'm your host, Delisha Alumbus. I'm joined in studio this week by Simon Allison of the Daily Maverick, Paul Mason from Amandla.mobi and Andrea Teagle also working with us at the Daily Maverick. Um, we're going to start up things a little bit differently this week. We're going to try and engage with some of the light-hearted stuff before we get into the death and destruction that seems to be dominating our, our news cycles as usual. Um, we're going to have a fun fact of the day. I've asked all our all our guests to bring in a fact. Um, I see Paul uh, shaking his head. Um, and let's go to Andrea quickly. It's, um, it's something you've been working on in the first thing as part of the first thing program. We put out a fact every day. Um, you've got a fact for us. What's what's your fact for this week? Uh, yeah. Um, so, so my fact is that you don't actually need eyes in order to see. I thought that was very interesting. Um, (laughs) The field of study is called electrotactile stimulation. um, And basically how it works is a blind person can put on a pair of glasses and on the glasses is mounted um, a little miniature video camera and it transmits the images um, from the camera to a small device in the person's mouth. And there it's translated into electrical pulses um, on your tongue. Um, So now at first, obviously nothing's really going to happen, but after a while, your brain picks up that that's very similar to visual input, and it starts interpreting these pulses as an image, um, which basically then allows the person to see uh, through their tongue in a manner of speaking. So I thought that was very cool. Holy crap. That, yeah. is, that is actually very, <laughs> very cool. And, yeah. and, and has this been uh, trialed? Has this been piloted around the world? I mean, have there been uh, cases, you know, medical trials out there? Yeah, um, it actually, I think the technology is reasonably old already. I think it's it's been around for a few years already. It's very expensive and not really feasible. And um, the the image that you get, obviously, there's no color involved. Like the electrical impulses can only stimulate light and dark um, by the strength of the pulse. So, um, you know, I think it's it's better than not having vision. It's not very good. Um, and there's also, you know, other technology like bionic eyes. Um, which probably works a bit better, but I didn't think was as interesting for the fact. Wow, well, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a pretty good fact. I'm not sure we can trump that. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a fun fact, well, but it was a cool fact. Well, it's a cool fact. I mean, uh, <laughs> Simon, have you got one for us? Um, yes, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can, I can, you know, compare with the miracle of, of giving sight to uh, people without people eyes. Without eyes. <laughs> but um, my fun fact is, is around typography, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't sound promising, I know, and probably is only promising for people like me that really like fonts and, um, you know, looking at the written word. Um, and this is about, you know, people who write to you, and I get it a lot um, with, you know, journalists send work to me and the, 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 that I am editing, and they they put two spaces after the full stop. Oh, that yeah. grates me. Who you know, teaches? Who, where does this come where from? Where does it come from? Um, it's so frustrating. And so the fact is... That two spaces, people, is wrong. Okay? It's wrong. You're doing it wrong. And now let me explain the, the background to this because it's quite interesting. We only um, want one stop here. <laughs> the two spaces thing came from the age of the typewriter. So now when you had a typewriter, each letter, no matter if it was an I, which is thin, or an, you know, an F, which is a bit thicker, they all had to occupy exactly the same space. Because that's how a typewriter works, you know. So each each letter occupies the same space on the page. Same so even within the words, you know, th- there's quite a bit of random-looking spacing. 
So that means when you're typing a whole document, you need two spaces after the full stop when you're using a typewriter. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see where the sentence begins, and you can see it's not just a random space within a word. However, we don't use typewriters anymore, people. And typographers are unanimous that this is an anachronism. And it's an abomination. The, the con- it is an abomination. <laughs> the convention now is one space. It's not a convention. It is a rule. Um, if any of you tweet us using two spaces after your full stops, we will ignore you. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a sure fact. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, who here has actually written anything on a typewriter? Like, I mean, as in used it to write something. Uh, other than sort of, you know, just push down on a button that you saw in a museum or someone's I, house once. I went to a wedding and they they had a typewriter to, uh, as like their guest book and you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd write them oh, something. Cool. And that, that was pretty cool. And it, but it was difficult, you know. My mom hung on to hers, I think, till I was about 10. Um, so <laughs> I have seen a functional typewriter. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't. No, I can't say that I have. I think, that, you know, sort of in a, in a museum or somewhere there was a, you know, just bang around, push one or two things down, but no, it wasn't even functional. It was, you know, it was out, out, out of date. I, I did, I did find it was a very viscerally satisfying experience, you know, because there is that, you know, there's and the, the sound noise and, and the, the sound. Like, there's more effort that yeah. goes into each letter. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and there's also the, the sense of, of permanence. You can't make mistakes with the time. Right? Typics, typics. Typics. There was the, the rise and fall of typics. Um, Paul, you've, uh, you, you don't, Per se, have a fact for us, but you've got some, uh, you know, in your dealings on Amandla.mobi and, and some of the things that you guys are doing. Uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about Amandla.mobi and what it does, uh, and then take us into this, uh, you know, those interesting tidbits that you wanted to suggest uh, earlier. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to come and talk to you guys about Amandla.mobi. Um, we've just launched about a month ago. Um, and, you know, we're an organization that's basically working to turn every cell phone in South Africa into a democracy-building tool. Um, and the idea is that, I mean, I'm sure for many South Africans, uh, you might be reading something on Daily Maverick or watching the evening news, and you see an injustice. Uh, it could be police stealing, confiscating blankets from the homeless. Um, it could be what's happened in Marikana. And you might feel outraged. But the question is, how do we turn that outrage into something you know, tangible? How do we actually go about, you know, achieving social justice? So I think for us, you know, we're a social justice organization that runs campaigns on cell phones. So no matter what type of cell phone you have, whether it's a normal basic phone or a feature phone or a smartphone, you can join our campaigns. And our campaigns are also in multiple languages. So the idea is that we want to basically be able to reach as many people as possible to rebuild the promise of a just people-powered South Africa. Um, you know, you know, 20 years of democracy, the question is, how do we actually deepen our democracy going forward? And in particular, for those who are most affected by injustices, those who are most affected by poverty, violence, and corruption, how do we actually enable those people to be able to, you know, join campaigns, coordinate and build community power to be able to achieve justice and hold people to account? So that's, you know, the idea behind Amanda.mobi. It's just, you know, there's just three of us at the moment. It was founded by myself, um, an amazing community organizer by the name of Kuketsu Morti um, and a campaigner by the name of Sibela Munukwa. So the three of us kind of came together and set up Amanla.mobi and, yeah, launched um, about a month or so ago. Okay. Uh, and, and what happens once you've sort of uh, mobilized um, the community and the people mm. and saying, well, th- this is something that we want to take action on? What, what happens then? What's the next step? Well, the next step is really it's about we're aggregating people's voices um, and, you know, delivering them to a decision maker. Um, so from the instance of the allegations um, around Joburg Metro cops um, confiscating blankets from the homeless, we basically launched a campaign. People could join in. 
And once people joined that, we, that campaign, we delivered those names to the, you know, the Metro Police and said, look, these people feel as citizens that you're not doing enough to protect all members of our community, especially the most vulnerable like the homeless. And so it's really about, you know, keeping that pressure on, you know, decision makers to hold them to account. And we're actually really excited. We, um, this morning when we were talking to the Metro Police, they've actually, you know, they've received our campaign. They see what our campaign was basically asking that the police send their officers to go volunteer at soup kitchens to hand out blankets, not just confiscate them. Um, and the police have actually agreed to look into that and actually send their cops. What sort of numbers did you get on that, that campaign? That campaign in particular wasn't actually a lot of numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 150 compared to the campaign we've been running to get minor shot down mm-hmm. on ETV and SABC, which was over 3,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually, you know, you don't actually necessarily need huge numbers mm-hmm. uh, to be able to actually reach the other decision makers. Um, so, so for in the example of the Metro Cops, they, they did receive it. They did take it seriously. They did, they did follow the normal channels that, that you would with a normal petition or normal um, galvanization of, of people's voices. Mm. Okay. Yeah, definitely. They definitely were receptive. Um, I think basically because we weren't necessarily very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were also saying, look, we want to work with you. You know, as citizens, we want to engage constructively with our police force and actually say, you know, we want to ensure that you're actually, you know, doing your duty to actually support vulnerable members of our community. And so do you uh, print out a list of the names and give the names? These are the people who support it and, 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 put, their, uh, and put their names to this petition? Yeah, we do. So we normally... Uh, you know, when we, so last Friday when we delivered over 3,000 signatures to the SABC and ETV, you know, we printed on hard copy so they mm-hmm. can see. Mm-hmm. So when the ETV spokesperson said that they felt they had adequately covered what had happened at Marikana, you know, mm-hmm. we had 20 widows of the Marikana massacre and over 3,000 names, this huge, you know, wad of paper to actually say, well, we actually disagree with you. Um, we feel that, you know, the stories of minors need to mm-hmm. be told. Um, so yeah, we do, you know, endeavor to actually print out those petitions so people can actually see, you know, these are the individuals who have actually taken the time out of their day to actually, you know, read about this issue, join a campaign, add their voice. And a lot of people, when they join a campaign, often, um, you know, add comments. We had a lot of people, particularly on the Marikana campaign, talking about the fact that they are uh, TV license payers. You know, they pay for their TV license and they want as citizens and TV license payers for, you know, our free-to-air broadcaster and, you know, public broadcaster to be able to, you know, have some, 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 and have some sort of input into the programming that goes on, mm. that goes on to what they're paying for. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we jump into the Marikana stuff, because we, we're going to dedicate the second half of the show just talking about Marikana, the anniversary, and this, and this uh, petition to get minor shutdown broadcast on on the free tier stations. Um, you said there were some facts or some sort of fun facts you could contribute from some of the stuff you've done at Amandla.mobi. Well, yeah, I mean. You know, before I left um, our offices in Bromfontein to come over here um, and do this interview, I was talking to, you know, Coquettes and Sabello. And we, you know, had been asking questions around, you know, the importance of a documentary like Minor Shotdown being shown on ETV and SABC. And we thought, you know, there's a lot of shows being shown on ETV. Surely they could maybe, you know, stop showing one of them. So mm-hmm. we took a straw poll. A lot of repeats. Yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of repeats. You know, um, so Savello personally, who's our, one of our lead campaigners, felt very strongly that, you know, WWE, for instance, that's mm-hmm. not going to go down very well. You know, a lot of wrestling fans in South Africa. You know, there's a couple other shows. So, like, for instance, we, we would like to Furthering encourage... the cause of democracy by, <laughs> yes, by the ultimate warrior. Absolutely. Ultimate warrior. Um, we God felt rest also, his soul, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, we felt that, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not, for instance, um, maybe, you know, 
an interesting show, but in the case of, you know, finding out what actually happened mm-hmm. and Marikana, um, 34 people massacred, might be more important for ETV to kind of show mm-hmm. minor shutdowns than that. Or, for instance, um, later in September at 11 p.m. at night, there's a show called uh, Bikini Babes. Um, so oh, oh we, I watched that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Simon. Um, so the campaign is at Mala.mobi and probably 3,000 odd thousand other people kind of feel that maybe minor shutdown might be slightly more important. But also um, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, that was the other one we thought, you know, ETV maybe, you know. It really is an incredible failure of our public broadcasting and it shows, you know, particularly the SABC, which has such reach and such um, such influence in communities that more elite media, um, of which the Daily Maverick unfortunately is a leading voice, um, Communities we just don't reach, and and you know all these 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 little academic debates about um, should Cloudy and his you know, non non-metric qualifications be allowed to lead the organization? This is where you find they really have an impact in something like minor shutdown, which really should be required watching for every citizen of this country. Mm. That's what our people should be watching. Well, ve- very briefly, and and we'll come back to it later. I mean, that's probably the reason is because it is so influential that maybe that's the reason they don't want to show it. Um, okay, I've got a, I've got a fact. Uh, I've been dying to, I've been hanging on to this one. Uh, actually, I got it from a really cool podcast. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. It's the QI team, the researchers from QI. They have a, a podcast every week uh, called uh, "There's Nothing, uh, There's No Such Thing as a Fish." Um, anyway, that's the name of the podcast. But uh, the, the fact is, uh, and the way they presented it was that um, hippopotami. Is that the plural? Hip- General consensus, hippopotami. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with that. Yeah, well, yeah, hippopotami. Yeah. Uh, male hippopotami um, have evolved so that their penises can retract during times of battle with other male hippopotami to protect themselves. Um, so they have retractable, um, <laughs> they have retractable peni. Pen- pen- <laughs> um, and uh, and in addition to that, they don't have a scrotum. So um, the male hippopotamus organs are my fact of the day. Although uh, the, the little bit of work that I did to to have a look at and to try and substantiate that, not that I, I won't rely on the work of these uh, highly paid researchers, um, is that it 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 actually only comes out uh, for mating purposes, and, and uh, the rest of the time it's retracted and in its you know cozy little pouch. You know, I wonder if, if the the history of humanity would be different if men could put away their penises when they were not mating. Um, if this wasn't such a uh, such an influential, you know. But, but you have a point there, Simon. I think uh, yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't, uh, it wasn't things. So um, the other thing I've asked our guests to do as well is get a tweet of the week, something that's interested them, something that's piqued their interest or moved them or got them really upset. So who wants to go first on this one? I um I, I cannot find the actual tweet. I remember reading it, so I, I unfortunately can't um give it in its exact wording and can't give credit where credit is due. But it was a, it was a wonderful point. And it's about all these uh, the, the sort of race riots in, in Ferguson in the States right now, which are quite fascinating, an indication that, you know, all is not right in the shining democracy mm. on the hill. Mm. What the tweet said was, look at Miley. It said, Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber. That's who it was addressed to. You love to appropriate black culture when it suits you. But when black culture needs you to appropriate it, you're not there. You know, basically just mm-hmm. saying, look, you know, you can't be black for the good times. Mm-hmm. You can't just, you know, have the, you know, the, the style swagger. and the swagger and the, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you buy into these, um, 
you know, I mean, almost stereotypical notions that, that, that you see people like Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber portraying in their music videos and their notion and their, um, and their shows. And yet here you have a real race issue. You know, the, the mm. Ferguson, what's happening there is the reality of what it's like to be black in America today. And that's not a reality that, that Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus are prepared to share. And I think it's a, there's a broader point for all of us that, mm. you know, it's fun to, you know, act the part and to and to, to take mm. on some of these cultural things. But that's not being multicultural. That's not being culturally sensitive. That's just that's just playing. Well, it's just taking advantage, right? Yeah, it, it is. For the mm. sake of the, the persona and the marketing side of things. Mm. Um, Paul, have you got a tweet that, that's well, kind of stuck out this last week? Yeah, I mean… You know, about this time last week, we, um, you know, we're on Twitter and we saw this amazing tweet by Tio Malefe talking about the blackface incident at University of Pretoria. And, you know, he just single-handedly completely demolished any argument that there was, you know, those students were just having a bit of fun. And um, he did a series, didn't he? He explained it in a series of mm. tweets and kind of, a, you know, attempted to break it down bit by bit. I think it was yeah. like 10, 10 tweets or something. Yeah. We should say Tio Malefe is a former Daily Maverick writer. Uh, we got some you know. some credit in the molding of yeah, yes, yes, yes. molding of the mind. Um, and that's mm. what we actually launched a campaign on that issue. Um, actually, you know, how do we turn all this Twitter outrage about mm. this blackface incident into you know a united voice saying to actually you know the vice chancellor at the University of Pretoria, you need to do something serious about the mm. culture of racism mm. on campus. Um, the fact that some you know white South Africans still think that you know the blackface incident isn't actually a problem. Um, I think is really, really problematic. So that's, a, you know, it was a tweet that inspired us to launch a campaign. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, important. Yeah, we could probably spend a long time talking about mm. that whole blackface incident. Mm. And, and especially that, you know, that 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 that, that um, perception or that um, way of thinking by most, you know, most white people, what, what, mm. what what's wrong with this? You know, and and mm. we can spend days on that. Paul, has there been a reaction from the University of Pretoria? We haven't received a formal reaction yet. Uh, the campaign, I think, is still, you know, we're building momentum, um, talking to a lot of people in the, the Twitterverse uh, about, you know, we can talk and debate about this, but it's actually time to, you know, put your name down on a piece of paper and actually say, look, I actually stand for, you know, a part of, a part of a social movement demanding that there's a change in this racist culture, um, that we need to actually do something serious. It's not adequate to say, you know, I grew up as a West African washing Leon Schuster. Um, and therefore, you know. Yeah, that's fine and dandy. And that <laughs> how gives he, you the. How does he get away with it? Was, <laughs> it was very interesting <laughs> after we ran this campaign that it was either ETV or SABC announced uh, a Leon Schuster marathon, um, <laughs> which I think was very unfortunate, uh, but it's okay. You know, we. Um, yeah. And, and it is sad that those movies, even now in in this modern day, you know, come out and are still the bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the bestsellers, they top the you know, top the, mm. the movie ratings. Well, I think it's also very interesting to think, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have Twitter. You know, if you think mm. about Leon Schuster, the height of his career, you know, these discussions about, you know, blackface weren't really happening. And I think this is the power of technology. It actually allows us to amplify the voices of people who are actually affected by these issues. And it kind of levels the playing field in our democracy for everyday citizens to actually engage with these issues. So I think, you know, Twitter and Facebook and social media has their role to play. But I think something for us we're struggling with is, you know, not everyone's on Twitter, not everyone's on Facebook. So how do we actually mobilize people through cell phones? And that's why a lot of our campaigns are run through um, USSD, like a short code. So mm-hmm. people can join campaigns by dialing star 120, mm-hmm. star 4729 hash, or also on Mixit. Um, and we're actually mobilizing a lot of people through Mixit. Um, so I think, you know, we can have these conversations when it's more inclusive of everyone. 
I'm going to go out and uh, and uh, just relay my tweet of the week, which is by uh, a Daily Maverick journalist, Rebecca Davis. Uh, this came out on Sunday, and uh, and Rebecca's great to follow on on any given day. And uh, on Sunday, she came up and she tweeted, "I'm just catching up on the Hrikwistat conviction. So the accused raped his own sister. Fucking hell." And this was obviously in response to the fact that the the accused had now been named because he's now become a, a, a no longer a minor. Uh, and Rebecca, you know, tweeted her, you know, um, her surprise and uh, just disgusted at, at, you know, the fact that this was a son and a brother who had done this to to the rest of his family and tweeted with the expletive at the end, you know, fucking hell, um, which then prompted a response from uh, someone who we can probably only describe as a complete and utter knob jockey. Um, his response is, is fucking hell okay in Daily Maverick's copy? Surely you can be one of the boys some other way. And this kind of like, you know, uh, stirred a little bit of a, a Twitter war uh, and ended up in, in Rebecca writing this great piece, which was, you know, in defense of the, of the sweary woman, which is, you know, why is it okay uh, when men swear, but not okay when women swear? Why does it make it, is it any, is it more profane or, or, or more disgusting when a woman uses profanity to express her feelings? And, you know, and, and, and systematically breaks down this, this very sexist approach to, and, and you know what seems to be quite a you know a big problem out there that um, you know women can't use the same expletive language as we do and you know and adding some other mm-hmm. uh, some other arguments in, into the fact that you know it's you know the people who use uh, profanity the most are the you know people right at the you know um, the higher echelons of society mm-hmm. and people right at the bottom and it's the ones in the middle mm-hmm. who take the most offense mm-hmm. because they trying to aspire or achieve to be those high-class citizens. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was great, you know, that one tweet then sort of you know, sparked a reaction and then sparked a, a great opinion piece, which was, mm. which was then, you know, retweeted and, and read thousands. And, and the support from, from women out there who all sort of… And men. Yeah, and men. And men. And men. Yeah, mm. it, it was great to see every, and then it just kind of, it ignited this burst of fucks and shits on, on Twitter <laughs> because everyone was coming out in support and saying, mm. like, yeah, you know, I, I support this. This mm. is, you know, it's, it's complete hypocrisy and sexism at its, uh, you know, uh, at its utmost. Mm. Um, but, but with that, I did, I did, you know, I mean, Rebecca identifies herself as a feminist and, and that's a word that I don't really, I don't like it has some negative connotations for me and I'm not sure if it's just because of my perceptions as a, as a guy, you know, like this bra burning, you know, uh, ball busting, you know, man hating person, you know, that's kind of my image of, you know, or my, what, what it's been turned out to be when in, in actual fact, all it is, is, is someone who's trying to fight for the equal treatment of, uh, of, of women in our society. Mm. You know, still, that, that image, you, you know, it is a prevalent one, you know, the, the bra burning feminist. I mean, that image was created by men. Mm-hmm. To discredit mm-hmm. feminism, it's, it's precisely it's, it's another tool, you know, to say, oh, we don't have to listen to them because they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas feminism, I mean, we, I, I call myself a feminist. Mm-hmm. I, you know, um, I think I think, and I think most people, you know, most people that I hang out with are feminists in the way they they, they treat and speak mm-hmm. to women. Yeah, the I team of Zamanland or Moby, we definitely identify as feminist. I think, you know, there was this, this on Twitter and Facebook for a while, there was this thing going around saying that, you know, feminism has changed its name. It's now called common sense. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that's really, it's really pertinent. That, yeah. um, you know, you know, when you're talking earlier about, you know, this controversy of a woman swearing on, 
on Twitter. Yeah. You know, Rebecca Davis. I mean, that's in my mind is this um, tactic a lot of men use called gaslighting, mm-hmm. where the moment a woman talks about something quite passionately, it's oh you're being over emotional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do, you know, it is disturbing the number of tactics out there every day that are used to, you know, quell the voices of women. So. Yeah, I was just going to say I think it's very easy to be dismissive about things that people get worked up about. Um, when you're not the person on the receiving end, mm-hmm. you know. So you, I think um, men often think that women get overly offended, you know, by mildly, you know, what are supposed to just be amusing, sexist jokes. Um, but again, I think it's it's just if if you're not fighting the battle, mm-hmm. uh, you you can't really understand. And it, I think it's similar with race issues as well. Mm-hmm. You know, certain yeah. things just aren't amusing, and they're a symptom of of deeper prejudices a lot of the time, which unfortunately people don't even realize that they have. Mm. Um, okay, uh, before we jump into the second half of the show and, and dedicate that to Marikana, uh, Andrew, you had a tweet of the week that you wanted to that you wanted to put forward. Yeah, um, my tweet was also speaks to Twitter's ability to get ordinary citizens involved, I guess, um, and also speaking up for you know around issues that they empathise with and care about. So um, this one was tweeted from um, a guy in the West Bank in Palestine um, to Ferguson. And it just says, uh, Dear Ferguson, the tear gas used against you is probably tested on us first by Israel. Uh, No worries. Stay strong. Um, Love Palestine. Uh, And it also sparked a series of tweets um, from people in the West Bank um, showing solidarity for um, the protesters in Ferguson um, and telling them how to deal with tear gas and things like that. Um, it also got a little bit controversial because then people were saying, well, you know, why are we making this comparison? The two situations are very different. Um, but I think it was really more about just people empathizing, um, you know, with other people who were being oppressed in some way in another part of the world. And I think that's that's very cool. Well, w- one person who did make who, who did use Ferguson as a comparison mm-hmm. was uh, Ranjini Munasami when she wrote um, about how the riots that were sparked uh, that that were a result of what happened in Ferguson with the shooting of Michael Brown, uh, and we've seen you know the community and and the people up in arms and and the massive media coverage and the, the you know the the injustice uh, or the focus on the injustice coming out of you know the the, the poor and tragic you know shooting of, of this of the of this one person and then compared that to to what's happened at Marikana you know with 34 people that mm-hmm. were mowed down and the lack of um, you know the lack of response, and you know the the um, you know whether it's it's media-wise or whether it's just community-wise, where you know the, the two disparate um, circumstances around what's happened there with with the killing of one person versus the killing of of 34 people, mm. uh, and just pointing out the, these massive discrepancies mm. between the two reactions and and what's happened. Mm. But wh- why do you think that is, Paul? Why do you think there has been such a big a big difference between the two situations yeah i think at the core of it it's you know those family members of you know who were affected in ferguson not necessarily you know they were able to access some social media and twitter and you know there were a lot of very strong civil society and the media was i think you know not perfect but did cover their perspective whereas i think by contrast if you look at marikana you know we're having these huge public debates who's to blame you know this is a tragedy but what we are absolutely missing in this entire discussion as a nation, like grappling with South Africa's first post-apartheid massacre, is the voices of the miners themselves and also the widows and family members. And I think, you know, we were disgusted last week when, you know, you're watching the Fallen Commission and you have, you know, SABC News and ENCA doing live 
broadcasts of Mr. X and Sir Ramaphosa doing their testimonies. But when it came time for the widows to do their testimonies, there's no such live broadcast, live streaming. And I think that, you know, is part of this, you know, this broader problem of we're not really hearing the voices of the widows. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time we heard about their voices is when, you know, one of the widows collapsed and an ambulance had to be called. That was the headline. Um, you know, not necessarily the fact that people taking the time to actually sit down with the widows and actually listen to their stories. And, you know, we at Amanla.mobi spent some time with the widows. And, you know, what they have to say is so incredibly powerful. Um, but also I think there's a language barrier. You know, when we were at SABC and ETV on Friday, um, there was a lot of journalists wanting just to speak to the widows who could speak English. And I think that's a real tragedy because there's so much to be said. Um, you know, and we're not really giving, you know, the time and effort to make sure their voices are heard. So I think that's, in my mind, a very big difference in where we're engaging these two different issues. Um, Simon, that reminds me a little bit of the study that the Rhodes School of Journalism did uh, into the Marikana uh, massacre. I don't know if you saw it, but it, it, it was, it looked at, and it used um, Greg Marinovich's article in Daily Maverick as a sort of a, as a watershed moment and, and, and looked at the sources of mm. information in the media before that article made it out there. And, um, I, I'm trying to bring up the, the exact, um, you know, sort of, sort of split, but there was, you know, 10% of the media information was coming from Lonman, uh, spokespeople. Mm. Uh, the unions were getting another 20%. SAP spokespeople were getting another 20%. Mm. Um, and, and all these other players in government was getting another 20 20%. And ultimately, and what you saw was, I think it was something like 3% of the source of direct information that was making it into the media before that, that uh, Greg's piece mm. was, was coming from the miners themselves. Mm. So that they were being completely marginalized. And I think even then, that coverage, that little bit of coverage that was coming out um, from the miners was basically dedicated around the Muti and, and, and you know, yeah. th- that stuff that mm. they, they were doing. So mm. it reminds me very much of that case. And, and it's really sad to, you know, to realize that even after that article and after, you know, the commission's been running and all that, that we, we don't seem to be in a much better place. Part of it is, is simple logistics. And, 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 you know, so much logistics comes into journalism. Like we were talking with Greg Nicholson a couple of weeks ago um, and saying that Marikana would never have become a news story in this country if it had happened in the Eastern Cape. Mm. There's no journalists there. Yeah. Um, you know, n- not a single news organization would have paid for their journalists to fly to the Eastern Cape to cover the story. The fact that it happened in Marikana, an hour and a half away from Johannesburg, meant that we could cover the story. Otherwise, we would not have. It's as simple as that. Mm. Similarly, getting the voices of people on the ground is hard. You have to be on the ground. You have to have the contacts to find them. You have to know where they are. You have to persuade them to trust you. Doing that is good journalism. And that's what we should all be doing. But the truth is, we are required to produce, you know, usually a story a day, sometimes more. Um, There just isn't the time or the resources to do that for many of the journalists in the country. And and it's a reflection of the the crisis that journalism is facing here, where no media organization in this country, certainly no print organization, is making money. Um, it means they're cutting back on everything. They're cutting back on expenses. They're cutting back on journalists. They're making journalists do more and more work. And, you know, yes, you know, you see this on the, on the bottom line and you think, well, you still see the newspapers produced every day. You, see, you still see all this content. You know, it, it looks like South African media is in, is in healthy shape, but we're not. We're mm. really struggling. And it means that good journalism is, 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 is paying the price. Mm. 
Yeah, it is. And then you also have the outside influences of, of let's say, you know, a, a big public figure like Cyril Ramaphosa, for example, mm. you know, hugging the limelight. He's a much, he's a much more newsworthy mm. subject than, let's say, the one of the widows and from Americana. And there's also, also part of it is, is this myth that, that we have that, um, impartial journalism requires giving space to both sides or all sides of a particular issue. And that's, that's, you know, so, you know, if you write a story about the police, you have to go and get the police comment and let, you know, and that's not always, um, I think often that obscures the truth. You sort of weigh up, you, you know, you present this is one option of how it happened and this is another option of how it happened when actually the journalist goal is to give how it happened, um, regardless of, of, of who they speak to to get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, mine has shot down the documentary. Um, have you watched it, Simon? I have. Um, I watched it um, at the Bioscope in, a few months ago, and it, I just remember being profoundly shocked. You know, to see—I mean, I've seen all the images before, of course, mm-hmm. we all have—but to have it put in 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 the narrative, um, to have it traced all the way through, and just to you know, and, and yes, I think there are some problems with the film. Um, I think it it doesn't really—it's um, it, very light on on Amku's role. Um, in, in precipitating some of the the violence which preceded the mm. the main shootings, it's very light on Joseph Mutunjwa. He he comes out smelling like roses. He does. He, he yeah. look, looks like a he, he looks, he like, looks yeah. like an absolute legend, yeah. and he's yeah. not. He's a nasty piece of work. Yeah. But um, I think that you know the stuff he's done pales in in in, in mm. comparison to what the police did, because the mm-hmm. police have a far greater responsibility, and 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 what it shows is just they they just didn't care. Um, well, they didn't care for 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 the lives of those of those people, and and, no. and you know, and it was clear that those instructions were coming down. That mm. this was going to be the day. This was D Day. There was, this was shit was going to go down mm. today if, if if it wasn't going to get resolved. Um, but it, it was it was shocking. I mean, it's hard not to be moved by, um, the plight of those of those thousands of miners who were you know uh, engaged in 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 the strike, which mm. is legal, um, and. and yeah, it's it just yeah, and the the documentary makes that point, that full circle, that reference to Sharpeville and um and Soweto in the past, mm. that you know it's not it's not any different uh to those to those times. Mm. Yeah, it is. It? Yeah, sorry, Paul. I mean, for us, you know, you know the, what you brought up earlier, the fact that you know the media attention on Americana, we're, we're not really hearing the voices of miners and widows. I think for us, you know, particularly, you know, thinking what could we do as, you know, a social justice organization to actually ensure that, you know, the voices of miners and their stories were actually told. Um, you know, so we looked around and we when we saw Miners Shot Down, we felt that it, it did a far better job than any of the media out there in exploring the stories of the miners. Um, you know, ETV claims to have done a bunch of documentaries and, you know, exploration of, you know, what happened at Americana, but, you know, Miners Shot Down, hands down. And then we actually spent time with some of the widows. So there's an incredible woman, uh, widow, um, Mantabang in Sayahu. So her husband, Andrews, you know, was one of the, you know, 34 miners who were shot on 16th of August 2012. And, you know, when we talked to her and she said, you know, it's so important. So many communities across Africa still don't really know what happened mm-hmm. in Americana. And she's felt, you know, her and the other widows felt that if more South Africans could see miners shot down, you know, it's been shown on DSTV, it's been shown on Al Jazeera, but I mean, how many South Africans from the majority of the country can actually access, you know, those channels? So, you know, that's why they got, the widows got behind this campaign and actually said, you know, we want the story of our husbands to be told. 
Um, and I think that's why it's such a powerful documentary. And then this is why it's so important that it's shown on something like free to air TV, like SABC or ETV, for example, mm. to get that message out there to the people who don't have access to the internet and mm. don't have access to, uh, um, you know, to pay television. Mm. You know? Um, so how is the campaign going? I mean, you mentioned the 3,000 yeah. uh, people. You've, de- you've have you delivered those to um mm. to to the various TV stations? So, I mean, about a fortnight ago, Greg Nicholson for the Daily Maverick mm-hmm. wrote a story about you know minor shutdown and our campaign. You know, still calling it the documentary all South Africans need to see. Mm. Um, and you know, from there we'd worked with the the widows and we decided you know we'll broadcast our campaign. We'll you know there's we'll put a code out there so people can still join the campaign right now if they dial star one twenty star four seven two nine hash. Or go to amandla.mobi and you know you can still add your voice. So what happened was um, thanks to using you know you know USSD codes and also mix it and also having the campaign online, we had over 3,000 people join the campaign. And so uh, last week Friday on the eve of the you know the anniversary of the Marikana massacre, we travelled to the SABC studios in Auckland Park and actually you know with the widows, Mantabang actually handed over this huge you know mm-hmm. stack of you know signatures of people who had joined the campaign to the SABC. Um, now, their response was really disappointing. Uh, their spokesperson said that um, they, you know, had never received formal documentation applying to actually show the documentary on SABC, mm-hmm. um, which completely contradicts what they said two weeks ago when Greg Nicholson interviewed them and mm-hmm. said, you know, SABC turned around and said, look, we think it's a great documentary. We're They're very scheduling interested. conflicts or something, I think, is what they said yeah, in, the, in the previous or the first well, response. They'd also said, yeah, they'd handed over to SABC too, and their, the final decision mm-hmm. rested with them, and that maybe in 2015 they would find time to schedule it. But now they were claiming they had no knowledge whatsoever. So that made no sense to us uh, and the widows who, you know, had traveled mm-hmm. all this way from the Farlam Commission after a really traumatic week. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did get a commitment from the SABC to, you know, find out what had gone wrong communication-wise within the SABC mm-hmm. for them to, you know, lose all this formal documentation. Um, and what the producers from Minor Shot Down said that they would send through all the documentation, the email trail about them submitting the forms. Um, so that was, you know, the experiences at SABC. Um, and from there, we traveled to ETV's offices in, um, you know, Hyde Park. And um, it was a very interesting um, experience. Um, kind of the gates were kind of put up and we weren't quite allowed through to, to talk to the spokesperson. But someone did come out and actually accept, formally accept, you know, over 3,000 signatures. Um, but, you know, the ETV's response was they felt they had thoroughly, you know, covered Marikana mm-hmm. Massacre. Um, saying this to, you know, 20 of the widows and, you know, with a stack of 3,000 signatures in his hands, um, he did actually change his mind. And ETV is now committed within a month to getting back to us as to whether they will show, you know, the documentary or not. And I think for us, our hope is that, you know, they do the right thing. I mean, what in the history of South African television, what documentary has got over 3,000 signatures? And I should also add that there was an additional 2,500 people who joined that campaign but didn't give their name. So we only gave them mm-hmm. the 3,000 people who put mm-hmm. their name mm-hmm. down. I mean, a lot of people probably didn't put down their name because this is, you know, it's a really highly political mm-hmm. issue. You know, it's a huge gross injustice. Um, but yeah, ETV are going to get back to us. But we really hope that, you know, as I said, they do the right thing and this, their decision has nothing to do with Marcel Golding, the CEO of ETV's mm-hmm. previous relationship with NUM as their Deputy Secretary, Secretary General. Um, so that's the other elements at play here. The... The documentary takes uh, almost firm aim at Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, I felt um, it does. It, it sort of 
tries to put him in the spotlight as 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 sort of the main culprit or, or potentially the main culprit behind this, and also his transformation from you know uh, from union leader to capitalist pig basically on the other side. Who's, he does come across as very slimy, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I want to trust him. And uh, it's probably and, the right. Yeah. Thing to do. And that's also, you know, it's sort of um, my perception or the general public perception, maybe it's just white people's perception of uh, Cyril as a potential leader for this country. Uh, it's sort of, you know, the the disparity between those two images. You know, you know, he's going to be good for business if he takes over. And, and I guess maybe this does, you know, this is kind of like towing the business line, you know, in the role that, that he had to play in this mm. whole thing. But He's not the saint. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. He's not the saint that I think people are, are trying to make him out to be. Uh, and this documentary aims, aims, tries to put a lot uh, uh, at his door in, in terms of, um, you know, laying the blame or finding someone to blame for the, for the, for the massacre. Mm. Well, Paul, you and I were talking um, off air, and you were saying that, that, that the widows that you were talking to, that, that their main culprit wasn't the government or Cyril, um, but it was Lonman, is that right? Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's very interesting. I and mean, I suppose these are the narratives we can create in having these public discussions of who is accountable. But when we actually don't listen to the miners and, you know, the widows themselves. And, yeah, you know, the widows do feel that, you know, Lonman is in some ways getting away scot-free. And I feel like, you know, when you watch miners shot down, they do definitely explore the role Lonman plays. You know, the fact that, you know, the miners... Well, the to absence play. of the role that they played, I mm. think, is... Yeah, that's definitely a more accurate mm. way to describe it, yes. Um, so I think, you know, this is a serious concern going forward. Is you know, how do we, you know, we've got the Farlong Commission going on, but how do we as South Africans, how do we engage with this issue? Um, and that's why, you know, Ademanlo.mobi will be looking at launching campaigns in the coming weeks and months ahead to actually stand in solidarity with, you know, the family members and the widows of the Marikana massacre and actually demand that, you know, justice needs to be served, you know, these, and a lot of these widows are really struggling enormously with, you know, the loss of a breadwinner. Um, and, you know, it just, they just blew us away with their courage, you know, coming all the way, you know, to Joburg, you know, from the Farnham Commission, you know, after a really horrific week to actually stand and deliver over 3,000 signatures to ETV and SABC. So it's, you know, I think we, we really need to get behind you know, the families who have left behind from this massacre. Yeah, the other thing that was also quite noticeable in the documentary was the absence of a lot of people who were willing to who were willing to participate and be interviewed uh, for the documentary. People like Jacob Zuma, mm-hmm. Natim Tetwaria Pieja, um, and a whole host of of, of people, uh, you know, from the government side. Um, and I think it also just speaks volumes to um, the sort of standoffish, almost hoping for it to go away approach that, you know, dragging this commission out for, what's it, two years now, almost two years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it works, doesn't it? I mean, if you look, you know, Cyril comes out as the bad guy because Cyril was talking. Um, we, we The documentary mm-hmm. could take aim at Cyril because they had him. Mm-hmm. They couldn't take, you know, full aim at yeah, Nati and Petra or Jacob Zuma or in the same it. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine Cyril is greatly regretting participating in that interview. And I wonder on what terms... The filmmakers managed to managed to secure the interview. What did they tell Cyril's office that mm. um, they were doing? Also, I suppose Cyril, as a as a you know as a government yeah. representative, you know, um, I think you know there was pressure on him to mm. you know respond. Whereas if you can contrast that with London, um, you know, there's far less public pressure um, on them to have to respond necessarily. So I think you know that's another challenge is that we're not really hearing London other than their PR spin. Yeah, and also um, Cyril's role as 
you know, as a union representative from the past, you know, and that whole sort of, you know, mm. coming from the people and now being on the other side of the fence. And I think that's also kind of what, what, what boils one's blood a bit when, when you look at it and almost you give the sense of, mm. of, of desertion, you know, for the sake of the, uh, you know, for sake of money and for sake of the capitalist dream. Yeah. Um, and that, that comes out quite strongly in, in the documentary as well. I think we can only hope that, you know, Marcel Golding from ETV doesn't commit a similar, you know, error, you know, coming from mm-hmm. Num, you know, understanding the issues facing mine workers. Um, we can only hope that it won't make the same mistake as perhaps, you know, the accusations of Cyril and the mistakes he's made um, and actually ensuring that, you know, justice is served. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's been two years now since uh, the massacre happened. I mean, we, we, we kind of get, we get a, a, a bit of feeling, we get a bit of backlash. Well, you know, from people saying that there's Marikana fatigue, um, which is crazy to think when something of this, you know, magnitude happens that, you know, we've got people who, who don't really understand the the intricacies of what went down that day to be able to say something as ignorant as, you know, like, can we just move on? You know, can we talk about mm-hmm. something else? You know, and, and that, that that's something that, you know, we, we get and, you know, and, and to the credit of our editor, he keeps pushing pushing it because this is the biggest tragedy of mm. post-South Africa, mm. uh, post-apartheid South Africa. Mm. Um, so the things that you guys are doing, I mean, obviously, um, you know, even despite some of the shortcomings um, that the documentary has, it is important. That's why we do call it, you know, the documentary that every South African should see. Mm. Um, and there are ways, I, mean, I believe, there you can arrange for private screenings. So it's something that, you know, I've discussed um, you know, with, with our guys that we, we, we want to put on a, a special daily Maverick screening and see if we can get, you know, some of our audience out there to, mm. to come and join us and, 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 you know, have a screening. So that's something we'll be working on. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you're listening out there and, you know, they encourage, uh, private screenings at home and you can arrange that with the, with the producers, you know, get in touch, go to the minor shutdown website, um, get in touch with them. They'll arrange for a copy mm. to be, to be sent to you or that you can go and pick up and, and, and screen it out there because I think it, it really is something that, um, you know, A, we must never forget and B, we, we, we've got to get to the, you know, to, to the truth behind this mm. and, and real understanding. And so we don't have ignorant people like Steve Hoffmeyer coming out <laughs> and saying police are getting blamed just for doing their jobs. You know, I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, you know, that is, <laughs> but that is the kind of ignorance that, that, that exists mm. out there and which is a combination of media coverage, uh, Possibly a particular viewpoint or standpoint that comes from someone like Steve. Well, Steve Hoffmeyer does seem to um, mourn the days when it was the police's job to shoot black people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe that's what resonates with him. Yeah. That's why he's coming out going ho in, in, mm. in favor of the police on this one. Mm. Um, just talking about that, maybe Andrew, you can come in from this perspective here. Um, so. A topic like this, something, an event like this, I mean, the general feeling amongst you and your friends and your kind of friends, what's, I mean, what is the, um, the appetite to get a fuller understanding of what happened? Or is it just kind of let's park this and move on? I mean, you know, you come from a younger demographic than, than ourselves. So, uh, you know, maybe just some perspective from your side. Um, I would say it's sort of divided. Um, Quite a lot of my friends are very interested and do want to know what what really happened and continue to read um, pieces on Marikana. Um, but it is true that a lot don't, and a lot of conversation, you know, is around much more trivial things. I guess that that's always how it is. Um, and I think part of it again is just an empathy thing. It's you know maybe as you know as you were saying we we haven't we don't really hear the voices of the people who are directly affected, and maybe that makes it 
harder um, for a lot of us to put ourselves in that position um, and kind of respond with the sort of outrage that we should be responding with. It's just, I think for a lot of people, it, it's it's almost abstract, um, and obviously it, it really shouldn't be like that, and it, it's, yeah, a very, very important thing. Paul, do you, do you hold any hope for some kind of, like, legitimate outcome to come out of the commission, for some kind of um, consequence? Look, I really do. I think, you know, what happens at Farlem is just such a litmus test for South Africa going forward. Like, do we truly believe in all the sacrifices made before? Do we stand for a just people-powered democracy? But to be honest with you, if, you know, the outcomes of Farlem aren't as, you know, what we desire, I think, you know, that will be a rallying point for mobilizing more people to actually stand up and actually demand justice. So I think regardless of what's happening, I think, it's very interesting. If you read, you know, Daily Maverick today, there's some great pieces by Mark Haywood and, and Raymond Satner talking about the future of civil society and democracy in South Africa. And I think it's very clear that it is about, you know, people-powered campaigns. It's about everyday South Africans, you know, standing up. So you don't have to be a lawyer to be able to engage with injustice in our country, that, you know, everyday citizens can begin to take action. So I think that's my hope. And I also think with our campaign targeting ETV and SABC, it is crystal clear that that neither of those broadcasters can use the excuses and tactics they've been using in the past. They know that over 3,000 people are watching them and waiting for an outcome and that, you know, we'll continue to mobilize people. Um, I mean, every day we have people pouring in, more people joining the campaign on Mindle.mobi. So I think we're very, very hopeful. And even if, you know, they still refuse, we'll continue to campaign and demand justice. So I think this is just the beginning of a, a big battle. What, what in your, in your perspective, in your opinion, were the differences between the documentaries that uh, ETV themselves produced and Miner shut down? I mean, I think it's, it's really, you know, those documentaries I don't feel gave enough space to actually talk to the miners and actually analyze the context in which, you know, what, what was the backstory on what mm-hmm. led to the events of, you know, August 16th. Um, I feel, you know, there wasn't enough time given to, you know, miners to listen to their stories. But I mean, it's also, I mean, minor shot down, you know, there's a lot to explore. Um, but we definitely didn't hear the, the voices of widows as much as we should. But I mean, there's a lot of, the team at Uhuru Productions have loaded a lot of videos exploring what's, you know, widow stories and letting them talk about these issues. But I mean, I think the other documentaries, yeah, I just, I don't feel they've had as much of a response. Like when people watch them, they haven't necessarily been outraged or inspired to take action mm-hmm. as much. And I think that's a problem. And I think that's why, you know, when we look at this issue of Marikana, I think why we have this almost fatigue is this sense of people feeling overwhelmed. You know, they get that it was an injustice, but they don't know what to do. And I think this is the challenge for South African civil society going forward and activists. is like, how do we provide ways that people can take action that has a real impact? Um, so, yeah, I think that's the reason why I think we feel Minor Shotdown does a much better job of exploring the issue than the other documentaries. Yeah. Um, okay, so if people want to get involved uh, with the petition, amandla.mobi or run the USS, just maybe give us that USSD code again. Yeah, no uh, problem. So I mean, yeah, as I said earlier, like we're working to amandla.mobi is working to turn every cell phone into a democracy building tool. So anyone can get out their cell phone and just dial this code that works on all phones. It's star one twenty star four seven two nine hash, and then people can select English, Setswana, and Isizulu. And we're, you know, we're a small organization, there's only three of us. And, you know, we're actually, we don't accept any government funding, corporate funding, or political party funding. We're actually, you know, at the moment, 
you know, just got a little bit of funding um, and we're actually getting donations from everyday South Africans. So we're really people-funded and people-powered social justice movement. Um, so people can dial that code. They can find us on um, on Mixit at amandla.mx or online, of course, um, amandla.mobi. And we're running a multitude of campaigns and launching new ones each week. Okay. And what other campaigns are alive at the moment? What other things are, um, you know, have got the petitions going? Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, this issue of the police confiscating blankets from the homeless, which Greg Nicholson from Delhi Maverick also covered. Um, so that's a you know, campaign we're working on at the moment. There's this issue of blackface at University of Pretoria. There's Marikana. Um, but also we're looking at um, saying in solidarity with workers from Sun City who were protesting unfair dismissal and privacy violations, and they were shot with live ammunition by security guards at Sun City. Um, so our question is, is it Sun City or is it Sin City? And so we're actually demanding that Sun City do an independent investigation to what happened and why live ammunition was used on workers who were just using their democratic right to strike. And with Marikana being like literally not, you know, just kilometers away from there, you'd think that they'd be a little bit sensitive to the issues of using live ammunition on, yeah. on protests. Yeah. Although this, the Sun City spokesman turned around and said they had avoided a mini Marikana, which I think is ignorance and arrogance yeah. on a scale untold. So that's another campaign we're running. Um, we've got a tweet here on the Cliff Central uh, account that's come in and asking the question, haven't seen the documentary, but don't you think the police were in fear for their own lives? Um, and, well, and I think, you know, if you watch the documentary, it kind of lays out quite clearly, um, you know, whose lives were in danger and, and what led to the deaths of, of, of those police officers. Mm. Um, so, you know, to why dupes, um, you go out and watch the documentary mm-hmm. and then ask the question again, I think is, I think is the answer to that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. The answer will be very, very clear. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, the, the most telling thing was uh, on the morning of the 16th, when, um, when as part of the preparations, when part of the, you know, I mean, there were thousands, almost thousands of cops that were there, and mm. four mortuary vans yep. were dispatched mm. ahead of of uh, of the day's proceedings. And I mean, if that isn't a, is an indictment um, of you know of the police's expected behavior and what was going mm-hmm. to unfold that day, then I don't think anything anything else could be. Okay, uh, we've reached the end of our session. Uh, that's the end of the Daily Maverick Show for this week. Uh, we'll be back every Tuesday at 1 p.m. or you can catch us on the podcast available from the cliffcentral.com website or from Daily Maverick. We look forward to hosting you again next week. Goodbye.